You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Well, good morning, Grace Point. How's everybody doing? All right, I'm not, uh, I'm not Travis. Travis, you heard from Travis earlier. My name's Joel. Uh, I'm not a pastor of the church. I'm uh, one of the covenant partners, and I lead a community group. And uh, every now and then, when we come across difficult passages that Travis doesn't want to preach, uh, <laughs> then I get to preach it. So it's happened more than once. So I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's an accident. Hey, they didn't know I was going to say this, but I'm going to say this too, because uh, I had the chance to do this. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but this is, uh, October is also Pastor Appreciation Month. That's not why I'm preaching, but, uh, but we, have, we have four pastors in our church, and uh, so I would encourage you to uh, find ways to encourage them. Uh, having served in a church for 10 years before I went in the military to serve as a chaplain, I know how challenging it is to be a pastor, and uh, I don't know what it's like to be a pastor in a church plant like we are, uh, but I envision that's even harder. So I would encourage you to find ways, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I encourage you to find ways this month, and frankly the other 11 months of the year as well, to find ways to encourage our pastors and their families uh, for the challenges that they face and uh, for the joys that they have in serving you and serving this church. But I encourage you to do that because we have some, I'm a little biased, but we have some pretty great pastors, so I encourage you to do that. All right. And no extra charge for that, by the way. That was totally, that was totally for me. Um, so we're looking at an interesting passage today. We'll talk about, well, there's a few things we've got to talk about actually before we get into the passage. But um, uh, what we're going to talk about, the, 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 the Pharisees, is, as John read the passage, the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus into an ethical dilemma. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. You know what an ethical dilemma is? Have you ever been in one? You probably have. An ethical dilemma, this is according to the interwebs, uh, so the definition has to be accurate. Uh, it's a problem with the decision-making process between two possible options, neither of which is absolutely acceptable. Okay? And, that, and I'll get into what really where they're trying to push Jesus in a minute. But have you ever been in one of those? Or you ever studied one of those? Maybe you've had a class on ethics or something like that. Um, I've done some classes on ethics. And the, the, um, one of the stories that I, that I learned in, in, in the area of ethics is the story, have you ever heard of this one, of the baker? and the starving child. So the ethical dilemma is uh, you have a starving child, you live in a, in a community where there's, there's no bread, there's no money, and there just happens to be a baker in town who has one last loaf of bread, but you have no money to, to pay for that. What do you do? What's the ethical dilemma? Well, you have a starving child, and the ethical dilemma is we don't let children die. That's, that violates our moral code, moral compass, right? Um, we don't like to let adults die either, but for some reason it's more poignant if you use a child as the example. The other side of that is it's wrong to steal, right? So we don't want to steal. So we have this ethical dilemma. What do we do in the midst of an ethical dilemma? On one, on one hand, we would say that allowing the starving child to die would be cruel and inhumane. But on the other hand, stealing's wrong. So... And after that, think about, well, maybe the baker has a child that would starve. So you'd steal that last 
loaf of bread away from that baker and maybe away from that baker's child, so you'd be contributing to the death of that child. Just make it a little more complicated and a little more sad. Um, so what do you do? Well, oftentimes in, in, these, in these moral dilemmas, I was just going to leave it there. I was going to go on, but <laughs> I don't want to do that. Uh, in these moral dilemmas, you have to kind of, you force yourself to make priorities, right? So what's the priority? And most people, most people would say, well, the priority is life. And so I'm probably going to steal the loaf of bread for the sake of my child and maybe share it with the baker's kid if he's got one. You know, that kind of thing. That's how we, we sort of prioritize that. But ethical dilemmas are never comfortable. They're always uncomfortable because it puts you between two decisions, neither of which is ideal. And the, and the Pharisees are going to try to do that to Jesus in this text. And it's fascinating to see how he avoids that ethical dilemma and gets to the heart of the matter. But we'll get to that in a second. Before we get to that, and this is what really makes this text difficult, and this is why Travis didn't want to preach it, just kidding, um, is, uh, is, is this uh, issue of textual, text, textual criticism. So you may notice if you have a paper Bible, maybe not so much in your electronic Bibles, if you turn to John chapter 7, verse 53. Uh, go ahead and do that, by the way, if you haven't done so already. And we, and we do have Bibles uh, uh, available out out there, if you, if you don't have one, uh, out, in the, out in the lobby area, if you want to get, what do we call that area again? The Connect area. If you, if you want to get a Bible, I encourage you to do that. Those are free. You can take them home with you. and Because uh, we kind of tend to teach out of the Bible in our church, and so we encourage you to follow along with that. If you don't have one, download it on your phone. Um, but you may have noticed <clears throat> at the beginning of this text, there's some big letters, big capital letters that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include this text. What's that mean? Okay, so um, in the three hours I have to talk to you, where I'm going to try to try to boil this down as, as small as I can. So uh, let me tell you some things you may or may not know. So the Bible you have in your hand, whether it's on your whether it's in paper form or it's on your phone, is is put together from thousands of manuscripts uh, or or sections of the Bible that have been copied and handed down over the centuries. We don't have the original, you know, paper, papyrus. Uh, we don't have the originals, whether the Old Testament or New Testament. We don't have the originals, okay? Uh, before the printing press was invented, uh, there were some very dedicated people who, who were very diligent about copying the text. They would literally take one copy, and then they would, they would write down word for word, as best they could, as best they could uh, copies so that it could be distributed in different places. And that was true, certainly in the New Testament church, and that's how we got, we got the letters that we have. They were distributed around, they were, they were preached from, they were taught, taught from, uh, and they were copies that were distributed around and around. Um, and your Bible you have uh, is, is sort of a, is, is a compilation. We brought all those together uh, to put the text together. Uh, we don't have any, 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 any permanent ones or, or, or even full ones, uh, but we have manuscript fragments that we put together, and we compare those fragments against one another for accuracy to get the entire text we have, okay? But as your Bible says, this particular story is not found in some of the earliest manuscripts we have of the book of John. So where did it come from? Well, you can tell it's kind of awkwardly placed in this section. It's sort of abrupt how it begins. You know, they each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and it's just kind of abrupt. In fact, if you Kind of skip this section, you finish off with John 7:42, and then go to John 8:12. The text actually flows a little bit better. 
But John was never meant to be a chronological text anyway. Uh, and so it, it, it does kind of look like it's sort of shoved in there a little bit, uh, which leads many scholars to believe that this story is not part of the original letter that John wrote. But it doesn't mean it's not authentic. It just means that maybe it's not part of the original book. In fact, M.C. Tenney, who is a New Testament scholar, notes this. I think it's going to be on the screen. He says, um, To say that it does not belong in the gospel is not identical with rejecting it as unhistorical. Its coherence and spirit show that it was preserved from a very early time, and it accords well with the known character of Jesus. Maybe accepted as historical truth, but based on the information we now have, it's probably not part of the original text. And so, uh, though a large number of scholars don't, don't believe it's part of the original Gospel of John, they believe it's, a, it's an historical event. It bears all the earmarks of an eyewitness testimony. D.A. Carson said this, he said, there's little reason for doubting the event here described occurred, even if it's written form, it did not, in the beginning, belong to the canonical books. And then Brett, you know, just one more. Bruce Metzger says, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. So in other words... They don't necessarily think that it belongs here in the Gospel of John, but nobody questions its historicity. Nobody seems to question the fact that it's probably part of the, the life of Jesus. And then the other part of this is, you know, we, we compare this kind of the, to the rest of the character of Jesus and in other places in Scripture and in the other Gospels and so forth, and we kind of compare it and we say, okay, how does this stack up against that? I mean, is there anything in this text that seems to be out of the norm in Jesus' character and the way Jesus operates. And scholars have said, and I would agree, uh, no. I mean, it seems to be very consistent. I think it's consistent with who Jesus is, how he operates. And so for that reason, I, I think I, I have no issues with this text. I have no issues with teaching and preaching it as part of the Word of God. I have no issues in teaching and preaching it as, as, as a, a story of Jesus' life in, in which he, he did some pretty powerful things. If you have any questions about that, again, talk to... Uh, Talk to Travis afterwards. Okay. All right, so let's, let's look specifically at the text. Um, and again, if you don't have a Bible, we're going to have passages. We'll walk through it on the screens, but I encourage you to have a Bible of your own. The, t- the context of, of John's narrative, and not necessarily immediately chronologically what's happening, but as you progress through the book of John, you may have noticed as we've been studying this, there's a great deal of division and controversy about who Jesus really is. I mean, is he the, is he the Messiah? Is he the promised Son of God? Or is he just some crazy prophet who happens to be drawing a fairly large audience and growing? It doesn't really matter to the Jewish leaders whether he's a Messiah or not. In fact, they pretty much excuse that part. But what they're concerned about is the fact that Jesus is taking influence and power away from them. The things that they think they should be having because they're the Jewish leaders and he's taking that away from them. And so he's a threat to them and their, influ- his, and their influence over the people. And so uh, they find lots of opportunities to try to discredit Jesus and try to take away from his influence in front of the people. In fact, they, if, if it takes embarrassment, whatever it takes, they just want to cause division and take away that power and influence. And this is one of those key places in which they do that. John, Jesus is getting ready to teach the people, and then they, they, just, they just kind of interrupt him. Let's just read verses uh, 2 to 4 in chapter 8. Here's what they say. It says, um, <clears throat> early in the morning, 
Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, there's some interesting things before we go on. The Pharisees, again, they were, they were trying to discredit Jesus and decrease that power and influence. So they interrupt him, they bring this woman in, and they say, hey, Jesus, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. So it's not just we have found out that she was an adulterous woman. No, no, no. They say she has been caught in the act of adultery. So let's talk about adultery for a second. Adultery is a big deal. It's, it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's one of the things that we, we don't do. And, and, and Jesus mentions it specifically as one of the sins that a, the rich, young rich man should avoid. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 18, he's in the, you know, the young man says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, oh, you know, you know, follow the law of God. One of the things that Jesus specifically mentions was don't commit adultery. So it's a big deal. It's important. It's huge. It's important to note, though, it's interesting, as I was studying this passage, I didn't realize this before, but both in Jewish and Roman culture, how they defined adultery, probably different than we had define it today. You see, in the Jewish and Roman culture at the time, if you were a married man, if you had relations with a woman who was not married, that wasn't adultery. It was only adultery if you had relations with another engaged or married woman. Now, the woman doesn't have a chance either way. But we focus on the man, and we say, well, the man only commits adultery if it's with another woman who is betrothed to another man or she's married to another man. Very interesting. So it raises some questions. Even understanding that context, it raises some questions about this story, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, first of all, how did they catch her in adultery? I'll leave that. I just, you know, how did they catch her? It wasn't, they didn't say, we heard, we found out about this. No, no, no. We caught her in the act of adultery. Secondly, the elephant in the room, right? Where's the guy? Where's the guy? If she was truly caught in the act of adultery, they would know who the man was. Where is he? Because, uh, the Jewish definition of adultery makes it clear that the man is just as guilty as the woman in the, midst, in, in, in the charge of adultery. The Old Testament law uh, states this. I think it's going to be on the screen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. We might have Deuteronomy 22. Do we have Deuteronomy 22 as well? Yeah. So it's a couple places. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. Okay, Both of them have violated the law of God. Where is he? So this begs the question, are they really looking to preserve the purity of of the people of Israel? Or do they have another motive? Hmm. Let's read on. Verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So, notice these Jewish leaders are kind enough 
in case Jesus was unaware, to kind of point out, hey, by the way, Moses said, this is what we got to do. I don't know if you know this, Jesus, son of God, but um, this is wrong, and this is what the law of Moses commanded us to do. And they're right. That is the penalty, right? But the Pharisees weren't really interested in justice. In fact, John, in his commentary, makes that clear. It says, Jesus, it says they said this to test him in verse 6. They might have some charge to bring against him. This is where the dilemma comes. This is the dilemma that they're trying to put Jesus in. And notice they're doing it in a very public fashion. They waited till Jesus was in the temple area. They waited till Jesus had some semblance of an audience who were listening to him talk, and they interrupt him in the middle of this, uh, in the middle of this situation all to try to embarrass him and to put him in a dilemma. So here's the dilemma. If he refuses to condemn this woman to death, which was what the law stated, he'd be accused of going against the clear prescriptions of the law of God, weakening the influence of those who had a high view of Scripture. But if he agreed with the prescription of the law condemning this woman to death, his reputation for compassion would be in jeopardy. But also, they could report him to the Roman authorities. Hey, this Jesus, he's encouraging us as Jews to violate your law because we're not allowed to execute people, but Jesus says it's a really good idea to execute this woman. So they could trap him in that way. And then he, so then he, the text tells us that he gets down on the ground and he writes things. And a lot of folks, there's a lot of speculation about what Jesus writes on the ground. I don't know what he wrote on the ground. John doesn't know what he wrote on the ground because he doesn't say. It wasn't important, so I don't want to speculate about that. But it's interesting to me that Jesus patiently waits to give a response. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't, he doesn't amp up the situation. You can imagine being in that environment, being in that moment, in that situation. Emotions could be running very high. And I could, I could just imagine the Pharisees when they, when they come in, they're probably very theatrical in the way they do this. Jesus, what would you do? Listen, look at this woman and how bad she is. So Jesus kind of amps down the emotion and waits patiently to respond. And instead of being cornered by that, by that dilemma, Jesus moves it from a legal issue to a personal one. Let's see what he does, verses 7 or 9. And as they continue to ask him, so they, they don't stop. They just keep badgering him. They keep badgering him. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Another point in Jewish law regarding the case of adultery, um, it required witnesses to begin the stoning. The people who actually witness the act are the ones who, who are to start the stoning. I think that we have that text on the, on the wall, on the door, on the wall, on the door, on the screen. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people 
so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So we presume that, you know, Jesus says, okay, yep, that's what the law says. First of all, where are your witnesses? You need two. And presumably, if you caught the woman in the act of adultery, presumably you have those witnesses because somebody saw her do it. So, Jesus says, one without sin, you start, you start the stoning. Why don't they begin stoning her? Why don't they start doing it? Well, there's a number of... Spec- there's, this is kind of speculative at this point because we don't know exactly why. It's interesting to note that John says, they point out that, that the oldest ones are the first ones to leave. I offer it to you a couple of reasons. And I don't know, but these are just speculative on my part too. It could be that the witnesses knew the woman was guilty because one of them had actually committed adultery with her. You see, they said they caught her in the act of adultery, so presumably they had a witness. Maybe the witness was also an adulterer. And they knew that the only evidence they had condemned them as well. Could be, and this is what you hear a lot of times when we talk about this passage, it could be that these witnesses were confronted internally with their own sin, their own failures, their own ways in which they have failed to follow the law of God. So if, the, if we're, we're bringing up the subject of cleansing sinfulness and the purity of the people of Israel, they were convicted of their own sin and they were no more righteous than this woman that they were condemning to death. In either case, based on Jesus' proclamation, they'd, in order to begin the stoning, they'd have to falsely claim that they were sinless. Which actually would have discredited them amongst the people because the people would know who they are. People know the kind of people they are. And so it becomes clear at this point that the agenda wasn't purity, but trapping Jesus. So how does Jesus handle the situation? Let's read verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus... In Jesus, grace and mercy abounds. Jesus is not interested in condemnation. That was the attitude of the Pharisees that brought up this case initially. I mean, their their purpose was to trap Jesus, but they also were really good at condemnation. Jesus had a much different perspective, and we read this earlier in our worship time in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that, that in Christ there is no condemnation. And so that's the kind of perspective that Jesus brings. Jesus says, if they're not going to condemn you, I'm not going to condemn you. Instead, Jesus invites her and and invites us to a recognition, to, uh, to recognize our sinful condition before God, repent and find forgiveness in Christ. And notice how he responds. Jesus doesn't excuse her sin. Jesus doesn't condone adultery. But he invites her into repentance. Go 
and sin no more. So what is repentance? I've got a slide up here. Now, I know the word repentance is spelled wrong. Okay? So please don't write Travis about that. Um, I know the word repentance is spelled wrong, but I found this on the interwebs. It was kind of the coolest and simplest illustration I could find, even though they spelled it wrong. So this is how but I, I use it. I just want to show this. This is, according to Wayne, so just ignore the fact that the word spelled wrong. All right? Um, well, Wayne Grudem uh, said that repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. <clears throat> this is what Jesus really invites her to when he says, go and sin no more. In other words, it's more than just saying, I'm sorry that I sinned. It's actually hating the sin, recognizing the chasm that sin creates between us and God, and turning away from the pursuit of it, and turning to embracing Christ. This is why Jesus says, go and sin no more. In order to experience that fullness of joy, of forgiveness, and fellowship with Christ, there must be a repulsion of sin and an active turning away from it. That's what Jesus invites him to, or writes her to, and you and me. Because perhaps you're here today and you're very aware of your own sin. Perhaps you're here today and you relate very well to the woman who was caught in adultery and thrown in the midst of this group. Perhaps like her, you've experienced the shame of having your sin exposed to others. Or perhaps you're living in some sort of sinful condition now and maybe no one else knows but the shame is unbearable inside. Perhaps you've been in an experience where your sin has been exposed and by their actions and words, others have treated you with judgment and condemnation. Maybe you've been accused, you've been embarrassed, you've been judged. Today's text is a reminder that no fellow human being is pure enough to cast the first stone. The Bible tells us that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Not one of us is righteous. Jesus paid the penalty. The gifts of grace and forgiveness are freely offered by Christ because of what he's done for you and for me. And so if that's you today, whatever it is that may be on your heart, whatever it is that you may have dealt with in the past, Jesus comes to you just like he comes to this woman in this story and he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Find the salvation that is available in me and receive that. But I think there's also a message here for those of us who are in the body of Christ. How we respond to people who are caught in a sin. Donald Guthrie says this, I think it's going to be on the screen. Uh, the final words of Jesus to the woman, maybe not. Uh, the final words of Jesus to the woman show his compassion linked with a strong command. It is clear from Jesus' attitude to the woman that he was not condoning adultery. This combination of thoroughgoing justice and deep compassion is not easy to achieve, but it is a fine example of how the church ought to deal with people. Years ago, um, Pastorally, I had the opportunity to talk with a woman, a Christian woman who had been, 
who admitted to adultery. It wasn't caught in adultery, but she admitted to an adulterous relationship, an adulterous affair. I remember as I was talking with her, I said, I said, so how, how would you like the church to respond to you? How would you like the church to interact with you? And she said, you know, I, I know I've sinned. I'm not trying to sugarcoat this or try to make excuses. I know that I have violated God's perfect standard. I know that I've, I've sinned. I, don't, I know it. I got it. But what I need from the church is to know that, I, that I, there's compassion, there's love, and there's opportunity for renewal and change. Is that what we really all want? Because all of us are broken people. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God last time I checked. But all of us have access to the, to the throne of the King who laid down His life for us, who doesn't condemn us, but receives us. And so, as a church, how can we do that for those around us? Condemnation, I think, is our default as human beings. It's easy to do. It's easy to kind of like puff up ourselves and make ourselves feel better, like we're, oh, I haven't committed that sin, so that makes me better than that person. And it's also what non-believers and the sinners, quote-unquote, of various kinds of people assume about church already, which is why it's so hard for us to break that code, isn't it? To invite people to a community that we enjoy in the church. But Jesus' actions remind us that compassion and grace should be our default as as the body of Christ. Compassion and grace doesn't excuse sin. It merely reflects the love that Jesus has for those around us and even for us because we're fallen, sinful human beings. So how can we prayerfully and powerfully communicate the grace and mercy and love for those around us? I think it begins with an attitude and actions and words that reflect the humility that we should have in recognition that we are no different, no better. That we, have a sinful, that we have a sinful character that God is working on just like anyone else. And invite people into community, into relationship, no matter where they are in their relationship with God. So I encourage you to just reflect upon how Jesus handled this situation. Reflect upon how Jesus was, uh, 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 was merciful and gracious, and yet... No, no compromise on sin. And how can we live that out faithfully in our lives? Let's pray together.